This is one of the most practical passages in the Bible on leadership. And if you've done any reading on evangelical Christian leadership, pastoral care, all that kind of stuff, you've probably heard this passage referred to. And it's not just practical, but it grounds its practical wisdom in sound theology, which is where all good wisdom should come from. It's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. But as we read through it, this will feel just very, very practical. And that's good because the Lord doesn't just keep his instruction up in the, in the clouds where nobody can grasp it. He brings it all the way down. In the story, Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, is going to come and see what God has done. He'll acknowledge the glory of God. He'll make a sacrifice unto the Lord. He'll have that, that conversion moment, I guess you could say. And then he will make his own contribution to the life of the Hebrew congregation. And by what, what he does in making his contribution is he's urging Moses to seek the contributions of others in the work that he was doing. The goal of the church is to produce disciple-making disciples, not just to fill the seats. It's great to fill the seats, love filling the seats. But our job is not just to fill them with people, but to fill them with reproducing Christians, with Christians who are going to grow in their faith, mature in their faith, contribute to what the, the Lord is doing through the church, and then make somebody else into that same kind of disciple. I, as a leader and a pastor, have a responsibility to train up men and women who will contribute to the mission of the church, not just show up and watch me talk for an hour once or twice a week. And you have a responsibility as a member of the congregation to contribute to the life of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, this is sort of our theme verse for our prayer meetings. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, that's congregating, right? When you come together, each one, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, that is a prophetic revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Paul says when you all come together, everybody has something to contribute. Some people it's teaching, some people it's speaking in tongues, some people it's songs. It says do all of it for the building up of the church. He uses the, the metaphor of a temple, building a temple, a house for God in the church, and that everything we do contributes to the building up of that edifice. It's where the word edify comes from, the word edifice. Each of us has something to offer, and without your contribution, this church will not be all that it could be. God has brought you here for a reason, and this is all what we learn from this passage. So let's get right into it. Exodus 18, and we'll begin the first seven verses. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The name Gershom is like stranger there, Gershom. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Eli is my God, and Etzer, or Ezer, like Ebenezer, means help. So my God is my help. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. 
So by this time, as we have seen already, but it makes very clear here, they are encamped at the mountain of God. Israel has crossed the wilderness and made it to Mount Sinai at this point, which as we know from Moses' earlier life, the mountain of God is not far from the land of Midian because Moses dwelt in the land of Midian. He was a shepherd for Jethro, and apparently it was close enough that it's the place where he would take the flocks to graze. We'll talk more about where the location of Mount Sinai might be next week. But Jethro receives word that they've safely arrived, and he comes to bring Moses' family to join him. This, you can assume, is something they would have arranged ahead of time. The last time we saw Zipporah was in a very strange passage. Do you remember? She saved Moses' life. God was ready to strike Moses down because he had not circumcised his son. And Zipporah, when the Lord was, was ready to kill Moses, circumcised her son. And you remember she laid the foreskin at his feet and said, you are a husband of blood to me. And there's the difference of interpretation. Is this a positive thing or a negative thing? Is she saying, this is a disgusting thing that you're making me do. I don't want to be part of your people. Or is she saying, now we're finally doing things right. Now we're, we're blood family, blood brothers, so to speak. I tend to take the more positive view of that. And you can go back and listen to that message from chapter four if you'd like to uh, look at the reasons. But it, it doesn't really affect the story very much. But it does seem that Moses had sent her home before going to Egypt. You don't see her in Egypt. We see her on the way and maybe she was going to see him off. We're not entirely sure. But they arrive and there's a joyful reunion. We've got Moses' two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. This is the first time Eliezer is named. Uh, it could be that the son that was not circumcised in the previous passage was Eliezer. And that, to me, might seem a little more likely, especially if Eliezer was a recent addition to the family and Moses had missed that part. But he's not named in that passage. So Gershom and Eliezer. We're not going to see a lot of them after this. Gershom's son is going to make a lot of trouble in the book of Judges, but we'll get to that later. Now, some have speculated that when it says Moses sent her home or sent her away, that this was a euphemism for divorce. And it was used that way in the Bible, right? That you will give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And if you take a negative view of the previous story, you kind of say, all right, Zipporah just about had it with Moses, and so he sent her away. But you can see in the story, this is not a, it's not a sad or awkward or angry reunion. This seems to be a positive, joyful thing. So uh, I don't see any reason to add that or read that into the text. Sent away can just mean sent away. It doesn't have to mean divorce, although it can mean that in some places. I think we're, we ought to be honoring Zipporah because I think she's portrayed very positively in Scripture. Moses stands in a long line of men who've been called of God to a mighty work, and Zipporah stands in a long line of faithful women who did not hinder their husbands from obeying the call on their life. And these are some of the unsung heroes that don't often get biographies written about them. But the wives of the great men of God are, are just as glorified in heaven, I can assure you, as their husbands were. Because there is a strain that can be put upon a family and upon a marriage when a man or a woman, for that matter, is called into the service of the Lord. This is why Jesus told us in Matthew 10, verses 37 through 38, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is an important thing to note, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, I, as a guy who's done some pastoral training and things like that, family comes first, of course, right? And this is a lesson we've learned very well, and I think we all know that, that 
a lot of guys in the Bible were great pastors, great kings, great prophets, and rotten fathers. And I d never, ever want that to be said of me. A lot of guys don't know how to handle their own, own children and their own wives, unfortunately. But it is important for us to remember, especially from Matthew 10, that not even family is to rank higher than God in your life. God always comes first. God called Moses to go and take the children of Israel out of Egypt. He tried to take his wife, and it seemed like this just was not going to work. Probably would have been safe for her. And so Moses had to go without her. And that's a noble thing for Moses to do. It's certainly no, no easy thing to leave behind your wife and your children. But this also should be credit to her for being so brave and allowing her husband to go. We talked about Jezebel on Sunday who did the opposite thing. She was the one always pushing her husband to greater and greater wickedness. But there are these wives that we ought to look up to who, who spur their husband on to greater and greater righteousness. It used to be back in the day, if you were going to go be a missionary, you didn't know if you were coming back. You didn't even know if you'd ever see your family again. Missionaries like C.T. Studd went down into the Congo down in Africa and would be separated for years from their family, knowingly. And we look at them and say, oh, that's so awful. No, no, no. Isn't that, if that's what needs to be done, that's what needs to be done. His wife encouraged him and helped him along that way. When they were able to serve together, they did. When they were in China, when he went to Africa, it wasn't going to work. So she allowed him to leave. And we ought not to lose that kind of devotion and humility before God because, you know, family can become an idol too. Anything that hinders the work that God is trying to do in your life is not a good thing. One of the reasons Paul recommends uh, to some degree, says, if you want to serve the Lord, then maybe you shouldn't get married because it's fewer things to worry about and fewer people who might uh, get tempted or pressured by this. And there are too many husbands who are neglecting their family for the ministry calling it ministry. I don't know what you call it when you do that, if your whole family's falling to pieces. But there are a lot of cases also of wives and fathers and mothers and, and I would sure children who are stifling the calling of their husband on, on the calling that's on his life. And I've, I've met folks like this and my wife has known people like this and it's a really unfortunate thing that none of us should ever do to one another. But we also certainly shouldn't say, well, because I have this claim on your life, you cannot do what God is calling you to do. So thank God for women like Zipporah who are willing to die to themselves for the Lord's sake. And she shares in the reward of Moses, which is no small reward in my opinion. When you stand before God, I'm sure everybody's gonna show up to watch Moses get his trophies, but his wife is gonna be right there with him. So I just wanted to, to briefly mention that because it is such an important thing. And to myself as a pastor, I couldn't be happier with the woman that God has brought into my life. You know, I married the right person. I can just say that. And, um, you know, I think of all the ways that my wife shines and does well, enabling me to serve and to travel and to preach and to leave the house at one in the morning and say, I got to go pray. This isn't really, message isn't really coming together. Yeah, go ahead, go. And so I'm very blessed and, and something we all should aspire to. Zipporah sets us an example here. Well, verse eight, let's go ahead and move on. That's just a little sub point for the day. But Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. 
And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, naturally, Jethro wants to hear the truth. Tell me what really happened. I've heard all kinds of rumors that the, the slaves aren't in Egypt anymore and the, the Red Sea parted. And, and I heard that you just beat up on Amalek. So what, what's happened? How are you eating out here? Well, there's bread that snows from heaven every morning. So, so Moses relates the story. And it could be that Jethro had his doubts, right? Jethro was a priest. You shouldn't think that he was a priest of the Lord here. He was a priest of the gods that the Midianites were worshiping. He's always portrayed positively in scripture, yet that is, that is almost certainly the case. So when Moses shows up and says, well, my, the God of my family spoke to me on the mountain. He's like, really? That, that God who's so powerful that his, his people have been in bondage for 400 years? That God? If that's really the God you want to serve, Moses, you know what? You have my blessing. Off you go. But now he realizes the truth about this Yahweh, this Lord. And he rejoices. He blesses the Lord. And he confesses here, this is such an important phrase, the Lord is greater than all gods. And you see, this is such a wonderful little, little verse, but you can miss it if you go too fast. I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they... Who's they? The children of Israel? No, that's at the end of the verse. They dealt arrogantly with the people. Who dealt arrogantly with the people? All those gods that the Lord is greater than. That's such a, a cool little thing. Remember back in chapter 12, the Lord said he was executing judgment, not just on the people of Egypt, but on the gods of Egypt too. This is a major theme that runs through the book of Exodus, that all these false gods, these demons that have arrogated themselves and taken the name of God for themselves, the Lord is greater than all of them. And even this priest can recognize who the Lord really is. The God of gods, you might say. The big G God of all those little G gods. And so he worships the Lord. He offers here, it says, a burnt offering and sacrifices. When we get into Exodus, I know you're all dying to get to this part. We're going to break down what all these different sacrifices were and what the process was. But for now, let me just tell you, a burnt offering was a whole burnt offering. That is, you'd take the animal, you'd put it on the altar, and it would be consumed whole. This other sacrifices, in fact, most sacrifices, you would butcher the animal, right? You would, you would field dress it, basically, and you would burn the entrails, you'd burn the parts that you couldn't eat, and then you would take the meat home to cook for yourself. That was part of the worship, was eating the meat. So the uh, temple would have smelled like barbecue most of the time. So you can think about that. And so they worshiped the Lord. This is exactly what God wanted to bring about through the Exodus, worship among the Gentiles of the true and living God. As they saw the wonders that he would work for the nation of Israel, God was going to show the whole world who the real God was and draw them to come and worship. So right here, you see an ideal situation as far as God is concerned. He says, I'm going to do amazing things through you. The rest of the nations will see this. They will abandon their old gods and come and worship me. So even in the book of Exodus... The Lord had always planned to draw Gentiles in. So it was not new in the book of Acts. It had been forgotten, but it was not new. So it was always God's plan. You look at men like Balaam. Balaam, who didn't end up worshiping the Lord, but he <laughs> knew enough about God to say, I'm not about to curse those people, because this God is way more powerful than all those other demons and spirits I've had traffic with. What about Ruth? She said, I'm going to go home with you, Naomi, and whoever your people are, it's going to be my people. Whoever your God is, I'm going to serve him too. Now, Ruth was a was a Moabite. She was a Moabite woman. And she is in the line of Christ, which means Jesus has Gentile blood in him. 
about the Queen of Sheba, who heard about all the amazing things going on with Solomon. She goes, I got to see this for myself. As she comes and sees, she says, I got to come see what's going on here. What about Nebuchadnezzar? Now, Nebuchadnezzar did some really rotten things, didn't he? He threw some people in a fiery furnace. He, you know, he, he made all kinds of worship about himself, and he tried to execute a lot of people. The last thing we hear from, the, from Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel is he sends a decree throughout all the land telling the story about how God afflicted him and made him think he was a cow for seven years. Because until I acknowledged the Lord, now I know that there is no God like the Lord. It's almost an elementary school kind of question. Well, is Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? I don't know, but the last thing we hear him saying is the Lord is God and he's better than all his other gods and he knows how to humble people who are prideful. Even Darius Darius got a little excited. In the book of Ezra, he said, you will give these people whatever they need to build their wall and to build their temple because their God is great and he's wonderful. And if you don't, I'm going to rip down your house. I'm going to impale you on the beam and then I'm going to burn it to the ground. Okay. That's one of those like, all right, that's, you know, that's step one. Got it. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with the rest of that stuff later, right? These are Gentiles who saw what the Lord was doing and honored the Lord. And this is also what Jesus desires to happen among us as we take the gospel around the world. That people will see what God is doing in our midst and say, I want a piece of that. It's amazing how many people's testimonies are, I just saw these Christians and they seemed so happy. They loved the Lord. They were doing things for the community. And so I said, well, I love my community. And then I showed up and I realized there's more than just community service going on here. There's something real about this place. We see this in, in 1 Corinthians 14. These are the verses that immediately precede the verse I read earlier. This is Paul giving a, a caution to the church in Corinth, but there's a really cool ideal that he lays out here too. He says, if the whole church comes together and you all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Now, there's some of you that have maybe walked into a church where that exact thing was going on and you thought that exact thing. What is going on in this place? Well, it's the Lord. Yeah, I don't know what that is, but you're out of your minds is what I think. So right there, we can see that we ought to care about what somebody walking in from the outside will think when they come into the church. Because he says in verse 25, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Don't you love that? Because if the prophetic gift is working in the church, somebody will come in from the outside. Their secrets will be laid out in front of everybody. They'll fall on their face and say, God is really among you. So you can kind of let's step away from the, the spiritual gifts application there. The whole point is that when you come to the church, you ought to have a reaction like God is here. Amen. There's something different about this place. The Lord is here. When we preach, when we worship, when we use those spiritual gifts, when we pray, when we testify. That's what Moses is doing here, right? He's telling the story. The Holy Spirit convicts the hearts of men and he draws them to salvation. Which is why we never need to be shy about spiritual things. You know, you got two errors that Paul just described there. The first error would be, you know, the louder and crazier it is, then that's the more like heaven it actually is. And if you don't like it, well, you, should, that, you just got to get out of here. Well, hold on though. Paul says, listen, I love speaking in tongues and I do it more than all of you. But if y'all are just running around screaming and nobody's stopping to interpret or edify, or, then, then people are going to come in and go, what? I'm, no, I'm never coming back to this place. He says, but if it's happening decently and in order and there's interpretation and there's prophecy and there's preaching and there's prayer and there's love, then people are going to say, what? there's something about this place. 
So we should never be shy about spiritual things and say, well, we don't want to get too weird and, and, and scare people. Paul goes, no, no, no. Like with the, with the right attitude and the right proportion, these things are, are wonderful and miraculous. And by the way, you should never conceal your testimony. We're so bad about this just as people. We don't want to tell our testimony because it's embarrassing. So let me just say it. If you judge anybody when they're giving a testimony, shame on you. When somebody stands up and says, oh man, I was, I was caught up deep in, in drugs and everything, and you start going, well, I'm not hanging out with you anymore. It's like, well, he's saying he used to be, and God brought him out of that stuff. You know, when somebody stands up and they say, I've been caught up in pornography, but the Lord brought me out, and we all go, Ugh. now what, what is that? What did Jesus do with people like that? He went and put his arms around him, and he loved him. He wasn't afraid to be seen with them. He said, hey, how about I go meet all your friends that are caught up in the same stuff? Pharisees didn't like that very much, did they? When, you t when somebody gives a testimony, and, I, and here's the thing, I think that the church is really good about this. I think that we know this. And in all, every case I've ever been in where somebody, even publicly, confessed something really awful and terrible, I've only ever seen people just come around that person in love and bring the, the most wonderful union in the church. So it's all in your head, first of all. Don't hide your testimony. Don't hide it. Let the Lord be glorified through your life. If he's brought you out of financial difficulties, talk about it. If he's healed your body, talk about it. If he's brought you out of sexual sin or anger or substance abuse or whatever, talk about it. Amen. Well, these are just between me and God. I, I don't think that's biblical, my brothers and sisters. How many times have you been ministered to by somebody's testimony? How, you know, the greatest evangelists in the world are not guys that go out and talk about the doctrine and the, you know, the teaching, as great as all that is. They just go out and tell their story. I was this way and now I'm this way. You get up there and they're not afraid to say what God has done. And everybody else who's ashamed of all those things, hears somebody talking about it, how they got out of it, and they realize, all right, I can stand up and I can, I can be healed today. You know, there was a, it's very unfortunate, but the ladies at Positive Choices have told me that very often some of the ladies that come in are being pressured by their families to have an abortion because the families are deacons or elders or involved in ministry at some church and they're afraid that it's going to reflect badly on the family. So they'd rather the child be aborted than, than have to just say, well, we're going to have to walk in grace. That, how horrible is that? First of all, to even consider that, but also, is there a place like that that you are in where if you say anything terrible going on with your life, people are going to judge you and beat you down? I know that that's real, but that does not happen here. Amen. And if it happens here, we will not be happy about it. And I've had to, not here, but in other places, I've had to step up and say, no, that person is barely saved, so I'm going to be patient with some of this stuff. I have a couple times I remember having, I don't know if I should send my, my children to that youth group because they know about that girl. I'm like, well, she got saved. Yeah, but we know what she's like. It's like, uh-uh-uh-uh. I'm not sending her away, so if you've got to go, you've got to go. But these are the people that we're here for. So don't be shy about your testimony. Jethro rejoiced at the testimony. He made a confession of faith because of the testimony. And I pray that we can see the same thing as the years go by. Verse 13 now. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. This is the, the meat of the story right here. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. 
Moses, his father-in-law, said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Jethro is spending some time with Moses, and he sees how overwhelmed Moses is with all these judgments to make. Moses, it seems, was the only person that had any authority to render a judgment for all these millions of people. So morning till night, there they were, Moses, he stole my ox. Moses, my daughter wants to get married, but I don't approve. What do you say? Hey, Moses, he wants to take manna and, and trade manna. Are we allowed to trade manna? I don't know. I'm just making stuff up here, right? <laughs> Moses, well, I don't know. Let me go ask the Lord. And he sees this, and they needed to know God's word for their situations. This needed to happen. They've been enslaved. Everybody was telling them what to do. They didn't have to worry about this kind of stuff. Now, all of a sudden, they're, they're free, but what are we supposed to do? And Jethro is a wise man. And he's able to warn Moses. He says, you're going to get burned out, my friend. If you try to do this all day, every day, he says, yeah, you're fresh, fresh out of Egypt now. All right? And you're, you know, you're kind of riding high, miracles every day. This is all good. He says, but the day's going to come when you're going to be like, I can't do this anymore. What you are doing is not good. Not only that, the people will be frustrated by the long delays. You can't even get in to see Moses. I'd like to go see him, but you can't. And, you know, that's where... People take the law into their own hands. And so he urges something so simple and so practical, delegation. Let other people help you. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. These two passages are, are parallels, mirrors of each other in a lot of ways. Acts chapter 6, just the first seven verses here. This is right after the day of Pentecost. The church has grown. Same thing. There's thousands of people in the church now. The first mega church, more than 10,000 Christians meeting in the temple every day. And you've got 12 young men in charge of the whole thing. You've got ex-Pharisees getting saved. Maybe who are still more Pharisee than Christian and need a little bit of help. You've got all these, these former crazy sinners getting saved. And we say, oh, well, there are always those that want to have a new movement that says, we're just going to have church and we don't need structure and we don't need a building, man. We just, we're just going to come together and, and just be with Jesus. That's all we're going to do. But even in the early church, they ran up against some administrative problems. So let's read this, Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists were Jews who were Greek culturally, and the Hebrews were Jews who were Israelite culturally. So a Hellenistic Jew, who is now a Christian, the church was all Jews at this point, a Hellenist was somebody that would have worn a toga, right? would have shaved their beard, would have enjoyed the, the philosophy of Greece and Rome, and would have gone to the Hippodrome and watched the races. And meanwhile, a Hebrew 
was, would have grown the beard long, would have spoken Hebrew, would have stayed away from all that stuff, would never want to be around Gentiles. This is a major cultural clash, right? Major clash. And the Greek Jews, who are now Christians, are complaining because they say, we're being neglected. We all have widows that need to be taken care of. And the Hebrew widows are being given more than the Hellenist widows. And the 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, don't worry about it, fellas, we'll get right on it. No, no, he said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Very much like when Jethro said, what you are doing is not good. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased to the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Similar way. The apostles are just doing church, and it's great, but now we've got a problem. Because we were feeding the widows, that's great, but it seems some of these Hebrew Christians still had a little bit of prejudice against these Hellenist Christians. And so when the day came from the distribution, they would get less than the Hebrew widows. And they're still working all these things out. It was so brand new. And so the apostles, okay, well, this has got to be fixed, right? Just like the people's issues coming to Moses needed to be addressed. But the problem was, they said, we have been given a very specific mandate from the Lord. And if we focus all day on trying to make sure that the widow's distribution is taken care of and every little judgment is taken care of, like, like Moses was dealing with a murder case one minute and, and then something really petty the minute right after that. So they said, we're not going to be able to do the most important things if we focus on all of these little things. And so they do the same thing that Jethro urged Moses to do. Let's get some other guys who are wise, who are full of the spirit, full of faith, that are able to handle this, and let them deal with it. And you can see a lot of these names are Greek names, so they put in charge of the distribution a lot of Hellenists to make sure that it was fair. This is the way that the Lord teaches us to lead in the church. It's actually the way Jesus himself leads, isn't it? Jesus is the, is the head, but we are the body of Christ. He appointed his 12 apostles. and after, Well, actually, he had his three, his inner circle, James, Peter, and John. Then he had the 12. Then he had the 70 that he sent out. And then there were the multitudes. Jesus always has a hierarchy and a structure of leadership. Not just because I don't want to deal with all that stuff, but because it's a good principle of leadership. You do what only you can do. And if somebody else can do something else, let them do it. This is the opposite of an idea that many people have about what leadership is like in the church. You know, the man of God, capital M, man of God. His job is to do everything. And this can be an arrogant thing where a man swaggers in and says, I don't want anything done unless I'm the one doing it. I want to know everything. If you're going to be buying hand soap, I want to approve the scent that you're using. And there, you know, I don't want to hear anybody else teaching, nobody else encouraging. I want to know everything that goes on because I'm the man of God. And then the people are, are learn to be sycophants and they learn to be afraid of the man who's supposed to be their shepherd. Or 
you can get the people that put this on their shepherd and he doesn't have enough strength to push it away. Well, the pastor always comes to the Christmas cantata. Okay, but I have COVID and you know, my, so does my, my wife. You should be there. <laughs> well, you don't need me to have, I'm not even singing. I'm not speaking. I'm just going to, you should be there. I noticed, Pastor, you didn't come to the women's conference. Well, I'm not a woman, you know. I, <laughs> what do I need to be there for? Well, I just think that you ought to be caring a little more about what's going on at this church. And everything gets put on this. I know there's, I'm constantly getting stuff. Even, you know, this is a great church and that doesn't happen here. But even there's constantly stuff coming across that needs to be done, right? We do need to pick a, a scent for the soap in the bathroom, Amen. right? We do need to have all these things going on. Leadership is important. And hierarchy does matter in God's church. Read through the New Testament. God did not just like level everything out and say, everybody do whatever you want. God appoints leaders. But the leaders in God's church have very specific functions. And when you lay them out, they seem rather narrow. Like, that's it? Yeah, that's it. And we see these three things in both of these passages, Exodus 18 and Acts chapter 6. What is the pastor's job? Number one, the pastor's job is prayer. The apostle said, we will give ourselves, devote ourselves to prayer. Jethro said the same thing to Moses, right? He says, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You will be in communion and fellowship with the Lord. First priority. The pastor's first job is to pray, to represent the people to God. My responsibility as the pastor and the leader, is to be in tune with God so that I can hear his voice and to bring your needs before him, to be constantly interceding for you. Paul says that you shall not muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain, right? He says it's important that you have people in the church that are paid, that are doing the work, and one of the things to do that is so you can have a guy on full-time whose ministry is prayer. If we really believe that prayer matters, it's kind of an important thing, isn't it? Let's get a guy who's Half of his job is to pray. Make sure we're always prayed up. You know, if this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting, let's make sure we always have one guy who's praying and fasting at least, right? That's the pastor's first job, prayer. Now, this does not jive with, with you know, modern, let's check out the, the line item budget and see where, where we're getting a return on our investment with prayer. Well, you are. You might not be able to see it. But it's like, well, what do you do all day? Well, I spent, a, I spent at least two hours every day praying. Two hours doing nothing? I didn't say I was doing nothing. I said I was praying. And you think, wow, that's a, that's a lot, big chunk of your day. Well, yeah. Do I pray a lot? Yes. Should I pray more? Yeah, I should. Especially now when we got the building thing going on. I get all excited and thinking about stuff. And the Lord's like, you got to pray, man. This is your first thing. Pray. Be in tune with me so that when the crisis collapses, you don't have to go and, and get caught up on your prayer. You're already talking to me. Number two, ministry of the word, right? That's what they said. We will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And this is what Jethro told Moses as well. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. That's the pastor's second job. And really it's all one, the prayer and the word. They go right together. Is to know and to teach the word. My job is to know the Bible the most. Not because I want to be the smarty pants, but because y'all need to have somebody you can come and talk to that can explain things to you. And you don't have to go looking for weird people on the internet 
to explain difficult Bible passages. I need to know it. I need to study it. And then I need to teach it to you so that you can obey it on your own. My job is, this is one of the reasons why we have a structure at our church that is much more teaching than preaching. Because I want you all to know the word and be able to remember it and learn it for yourselves so that when you're in the moments where you got to wonder what to do, you're already in tune with what the word says. So this is why I do a lot of reading around here. Oh, you must really like reading. Well, I do. But it's also part of my job is to minister in the word, to find out what other godly men have said before me, to be familiar with how best to frame this and not just to skim the surface, but to go deep and even to go to a place where I, I can always tell when I've done enough studying for that week when things are starting to repeat. I'm not really getting anything out of my books anymore. Like, okay, I've, I've heard all there is to hear. Now it's time to come back and look at this and pray it through and I get into the languages and I get into the church history and I get into the theology and it's important to do that because I'm supposed to be the one ministering in the word. And number three is discipleship. The pastor's third job, as we see in both these passages, is to raise up other people to do the work. Now we say, listen, if the pastor is praying and doing the word enough to where it's, it's the right amount, that doesn't leave very much time for, fill in the blank, handling the widow's distribution that doesn't leave a lot of time for handling all of the counseling problems that Moses would deal with from morning, noon, and night. Well, here's the thing. My job is not to do all the work. My job is to raise you up to do the work, for you to do it. I had this conversation with my son tonight. He's been having a friend come over from school every day, and I said, hey, have you talked to your buddy and asked him if he's a Christian? He said, no. I said, well, buddy, you've got to tell him about Jesus. You've got to tell him. And he said, that's your job. You're the pastor. I go, no, it's not. My job is to equip you for the work of ministry. I'm the quartermaster. I give you everything you need so that you can go out and fight the battle. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us this. Verses 11 and 12. Jesus gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, bundle all that up, leaders, for what purpose? To do everything? No, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is not just y'all come in to watch me do my thing. This is me equipping you to go out and do your thing, which is Jesus' thing. Now, are there other things that a pastor does? Yeah, of course there are. There's all kinds of leadership matters that a pastor has to get into. There's financial things that we've got to deal with. There's pastoral care. Somebody's sick in the hospital. Somebody has a, a funeral or, or a wedding or things like that. You know, casting vision and, and looking forward, all of that. And there's a, I do a lot of stuff, not just those things. But all of that is lesser. And those are all things that I hope to be able to give away more and more as time goes on. And I try to make a practice of that here. I intentionally don't come to stuff. So I don't want y'all to think you need me to be at everything. And there are some pastors who are afraid to do that. And they, they love to use the example of the story of Absalom. And it's a good story. Where Absalom, David's son, would see everybody coming in the city gate and say, Oh, what are you here for? Well, we want to go see the king and, and work this out. He goes, Ah, the king is way too busy. But man, if I was king... I'd, I'd give you exactly what you need. I'm so sorry that you can't get what you need. And it says that Absalom stole the heart of the people. Now that does happen. And there are people that will march into their pastor's office and say, there's 40 people in this church that are loyal to me and we're going to go leave and do our own thing. That happens all the time. And so, yeah, that is a concern. But that's why my job goes up a level. I'm making sure that we've got the right people doing the right thing. And it's just so good. And this is something that can scale. Can you see that? If, if it's all dependent on me, this church can only grow me-sized. And that's pathetic. 
And if there's only four people, then that's better. But we don't want it to be that size. We want it to be God-sized. And that involves discipling people, raising up people that can do the work. They ought to be shared among the congregation. Can you see this? The Old Testament and the New Testament both emphasize this. And I try my best to remain true to this. And, you know, here's another hard thing, especially when you're raising up young guys or new believers. You say, but I can do it better. In your ministry, right? You're doing the clean team or something, and it's like, oh, her again. Every time she comes, it's fine, but I've always got to go back and finish it up. It's just, I can do it better. I should just do it. Listen, can I tell you, our ministries that we have here do not just exist to get stuff done. I can do with it. I can stay here. I, I work here, right? I can do everything if I want. It's not just to get it done. And it's not even just to get it done well, although I love things being done well. It is to give people an opportunity to serve. It's like, well, I can do it better. Yeah, you, maybe you can, but they need a chance to use their gifts too. They need a chance to serve in the church and feel like you're part of what's going on too. And that can be frustrating for people, but it's a great chance for us to die to ourselves. So that's, that's an important little section of, of ministry teaching that we need, and, and it's very much something that we hold to. So these two passages, Exodus 18 and, and Acts 6. Let's, let's get to the end here. Verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. So Moses listened. He essentially set up an appeals court system. So not just one guy, but, you know, all the way down to, to tens, fifties. And there are some that say, that, that's kind of a universal way of saying split it up. It's not necessarily that you needed to have one person for every 10, but it says 10, so that could be it. According to the numbers we have earlier in this passage, it would have been more than 70,000 people he appointed, if that is the case. But it is important to note, he did not just pick those who were of rank. He didn't just call the tribal elders and said, you're judges now. He said he found able men, Jethro who said, who despise a bribe, people who are going to be just Focusing on character first. And that's exactly what we see in First and Second Timothy and Titus, about uh, the people that should be leaders in the church. Character comes first. Ability always comes second. You can learn ability. If you don't have character, though, you're going to hurt some people. This is the forerunner here of, of the doctrine that we'll call the priesthood of all believers. In 1 John chapter 2, he teaches us, you all have the same spirit, you have the anointing from the Lord, and you really have no need that anybody should teach you. Is he saying that there's no need for pastors and teachers? No, he's saying every one of you knows the Lord and ought to be growing in that and using the gifts that God has given you. Our mandate is not to build churches or to win converts even, but to make disciples. To train people up who can step up into the work that God has given them to do. Matthew 28, let's look again at the Great Commission, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has all authority. And Jesus is about to disperse this authority by delegating his mission to the church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I've gone over this before, but the, the imperative... The imperative means command of that passage is make disciples, mathetuo. The words go 
and baptize and teach are participles, which means they are subordinate to the main verb. It's grammar. Stick with me, okay? Right? So he's saying the main thing he's telling us to do is make disciples. And the way that we go about that is going, teaching, and baptizing, right? So get out there, make some converts, and teach them, all to the goal of making disciples. You're to take a new convert and train him up to be a fully functional Christian. That's what Jesus did. That's what the apostles did. It was done to you at some point. And in fact, it's what's being done to you right now. We read already in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, everybody has something to contribute in the church. The spiritual gifts, the word for gift is charisma. And in that, if you know Greek even a little bit, the word charis means grace. That kind of makes sense, right? To be graced with something is like to be gifted something. But there's an important theological lesson there. Every one of you has special grace from the Lord to share. Paul talked about his ministry as the grace that was given to me. The grace to preach to the Gentiles. I have the grace to pastor the church here in Alabama. I don't know what the grace is God has given to you. Every one of us has something different. We've already gone over that a little bit. Which means that without what you have to offer, we will not be receiving all the grace that God intends to pour out on us. You can cross your arms and say, well, God is sovereign. He pours out his grace. Okay, the means God has chosen to pour out his grace is you. Your gifts. And if you're not using them, then we as a church will be deficient in grace and not built up as a building as high as we could be. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He says, I taught you. Now you go teach somebody and teach them to the point where they can teach somebody else. That's what we call discipleship. It comes from making a disciple. This is our main responsibility as a church, is to find and cultivate contributions from the congregation. Not just me, certainly not just the people that planted the church with me, or just the people that show up a little early. Everybody has something to contribute. Jethro contributed. He brought in his, his gifts of wisdom and administration. And by the way, there are spiritual gifts of wisdom and administration. So don't think that when you say spiritual gifts, we're just talking, speaking in tongues and prophesying here. People that are filled with the Holy Spirit and they're given a special grace to administer the church. And that is needed, let me tell you. There are some people that they just come alive when we talk about budgets or when we talk about structure or when we talk about building plans or things like that. And that's a, that's a boring thing to a lot of us which is why God gifts certain people with those things. Certain people just have wisdom. They have divine heavenly wisdom. They can let us look at a situation that you can't figure out, and like Jethro, they just go, well, why don't you do that? I guess we should do that. We ought to pray for people like that in our church. So what about you? What are your spiritual gifts? What's the grace that you have to share with the church? Put another way, what are you contributing to this congregation? Pastor David Rosales is a Calvary Chapel pastor in California, and he tells this story, and he's such a, a kind, soft-spoken guy, which makes this story a little extra funny, that uh, somebody came to the church one time, and they were introducing themselves, and so they were just kind of, you know, kind of strutting a little bit, trying to, you know, flex on who they were and all this stuff, and they said, well, you know, we're, we're just eager to see what your church has to offer us. And that just kind of really rubbed him the wrong way, and he goes, 
Well, really, I ought to be asking, what do you have to offer us as a church? Because this isn't just about me giving you something. You ought to be coming if you want to participate in what's going on. And it's funny because he's such a, like, a, he cries every time he preaches and everything. It's like, that's kind of a tough thing for you to say, man. <laughs> what are you contributing? You can't just sit there. You can't just sit there. We need what you've got to give. And if you're not giving it, you're holding out on us. Every one of you need to be serving the church somehow. We need what you've got to give. There are certain things that you can, only you can do in this church. And there's a billion excuses we can go through. Too young, too old, too female, too male. Too Baptist, too Pentecostal. I've been, you know, I don't have enough money. I have too much money. Too much training, not enough training. I've heard them all. I'm serious. You've got to be part of what's going on here. If you've been saved... The first thing you ought to do is commit yourself to spiritual discipline to grow and mature as a believer. Then you need to identify what God's called you to do and start thinking, how can I contribute to what's going on here? Now you might say, well, I'm called to do this or that, and our church doesn't have one of those. Two things. First of all, well, do what we are doing. <laughs> if this is your church, find what we're doing and be part of that. Amen. Secondly, why don't you start it? Well, I don't want to be in charge of it. I just want to do it. Well, then I can't help you. I'm very sorry. If you're the one with the passion for it, you're the one with the heart for it, you're the one with the expertise, then you do it. My job isn't to do all these things. My job is to equip you to do these things. And very often we have these like, thoughts in our mind, well, I want to reach this community. It's like, well, we're, we're doing the schools, right? We're doing Discovery Club. We're doing uh, the prison ministry. We're starting to get that rolling here. Praise the Lord, that's finally starting to happen. You know, we're doing the radio, some outreach there. You know, we're uh, doing the pregnancy center, all sorts of things. Yeah, none of that really grabs me. I'm really thinking more like homeless ministry. Oh, do you want to do homeless ministry? Well, if you had something, I would do it. But, well, we don't. I'm very sorry. We can't do everything. That's why we have lots of churches. So that we can all do something. Identify what God's called you to do and then do that. And if you don't know, just try something. Step up and do what needs to be done. Fill the gap. Sometimes you just got to do the next man up thing. Well, we don't have somebody to do this. I guess I'll do it. And there are some times you get in ministry and you say, I'm only doing this until God raises up somebody else to do it for me. And then you've got to, once you've committed to what God's called you to do, you've got to do it with all your heart. Paul told Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Practice your spiritual gifts, he says. Practice. You want your preacher to practice well, he doesn't seem like he prepared, really. Well, did you prepare when you went to go teach those kids? Did you prepare when you were getting ready to go to Discovery Club? Were you prayed up? Were you waiting for words from the Lord? Were you all set to go? Were you, were you prepared? Were you practicing prayer so that you could do it effectively when you come to clean the building and you're walking on all these chairs and people are going to come sit in and hear the gospel? Practice. He says, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. That you're getting better. You're getting better at service. You're getting better at generosity. You're getting better at teaching. You're getting better at hospitality. We in the church are not consumers. We are contributors. That's how Moses did it. That's how Jesus did it. And that's how we're going to do it too. And I would say that's how we are doing it. So verse 27, Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Jethro goes away. We're not going to see him again. We are going to see somebody named Hobab, 
who is another one of Jethro's sons, and he's the one that's going to guide Israel to the promised land. We read about him in Numbers chapter 10. And later on in the book of Judges, it's going to talk about the fact that there were Kenites living among the Hebrews, and the Kenites were the people of Jethro. So we can see that there was some intermingling of these peoples as time went on. We don't really know exactly what happened to Jethro. I can imagine, though, he returned home with some great news. Hey, I found out who the real God of gods is. And that's the ultimate goal for us as well, for the disciples to go on and go make disciples and to spread the gospel around the world. So Christian, what part are you playing in that? Are you a consumer or a contributor? Be honest. You don't got to say it to me, but let the Lord tell you. Are you just consuming and taking it all in and evaluating the church service like you evaluate a movie that you went to go see or something? Or like, you know, you went to Disney World and how was the show? I sure hope not. Are you contributing? And if not, why not? There's a million reasons. Well, I just work so hard, and when I come to church, I don't, I don't have time. Let me tell you, church will refresh you. Service in the church will refresh you. Well, they don't really have the kind of group that I want. Well, sorry. Take what we have. All my best friends, I never really went to a lot of small groups in church. All my small groups were my ministry teams. No, that's where I made friends. That's where I was in, encouraged. That's where I had the opportunity to teach and, and rebuke and exhort and all those things by serving together. And that way, when you start doing that, you come to church not with the mindset that I'm going to get something. You come to church with the mindset that I'm going to give something. And as you do that, you, you start to have a heart and a love for this place. And it's not just, oh, isn't it great to see Tyler do his thing? It's like, no, look what we get to do together. We need to become, as Calvary Chapel, Trustville, a broad-based ministry that can endure way longer than any single one of us. If I were to get hit by a truck tomorrow, I hope this, this church would just continue. That's where we need to be. Or any other key player, so to speak, in the church. It needs to be broad-based. Until Jesus returns, this is our mission. You have a part to play in building up this temple. So take your growth seriously. Identify your role. Actively seek out and identify your role. And then do it with all your heart. Some of y'all know what it is and you're not doing it. Some of you don't know what it is. So figure it out. And the final step is to take along somebody else and teach them to do the same thing. And that's what the Bible calls discipleship. And that's what Jethro told Moses he needed to be doing. And that's what the apostles said they were going to do in Acts chapter 6. And I hope it's what we're doing here too.